0: Welcome to Climactic, and this special two-part series that's also available on the Climactic Features feed. That's where we post some of the standout audio content from the climate community, and also on the Climactic Live feed, where events are adapted to the podcast format. If you are a student at the University of New South Wales, and also interested in organizing for action on the climate crisis, then you'd be happy to know there was a course designed with just you in mind. Reading now from the UNSW Student Handbook for 2020, Arts 1241, Environmental Advocacy and Activism, offers you an opportunity to examine how environmental politics play out within society. You will examine advocacy and activism campaigns and case studies, focusing on mapping the evolution of a controversy, teasing out the distinctions between advocacy and activism, analyzing the role of popular culture managing social and traditional media, and identifying successful interventions that have an impact on environmental policy and decision-making processes. Key questions that you will explore during the course include, how do citizens make sense of and respond to initiatives that have potentially damaging consequences for society? How do science, business, and activists attempt to persuade? How are power relations invoked, challenged, and negated? within environmental advocacy and activist campaigns? And what role does popular culture play in creating and sustaining particular valuing systems and cultures?" End quote. As part of this course, a guest speaker was recently welcomed to speak to their experiences and have a conversation with the students about how to effectively organize for environmental action. This guest speaker was Mark Rudd, a Vietnam War opposition leader Turned fugitive from the U.S. government through his involvement in the violent Weather Underground organization. This two-part miniseries will discuss the history of the Students for Democratic Society, or SDS, the weathermen, the actions and effects of Vietnam War protests, and the lessons we can learn and still apply today to contemporary protest and organizing efforts. I'll hand over now to John Carr. Associate Professor of Environment and Society at UNSW, to kick things off. Welcome and enjoy. This is a great resource for real-life learning and application of the levers to achieve social change.
1: Welcome to Arts 1241, Environmental Advocacy and Activism here at the University of New South Wales. Today, my co-lecturer, Tema Milstein, and I are delighted and honored to welcome not only today's guest speaker, Mark Rudd, but those members of the broader UNSW and New South Wales community of environmental change makers who've been invited to join our discussion today. Given the digital presence of those of you who are joining our class for the very first time, I'd like to perform an acknowledgement of country. Specifically, I acknowledge the Gadigal and people of the Aora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land where I'm located and where the University of New South Wales is based. I pay our respect to their elders, past, present, and future, and extend that respect to all people in the more than human world. And specifically, I seek to pay respect through this course and our discussion today by exploring and questioning the cultural, political, and economic, and environmental understandings by which we have come to be on this land, and all colonized land. Today's going to be structured as a loosely organized discussion about two areas of our guest Mark Rudd's expertise, namely the limits of violent direct action, and, particularly relevant to what's going on right now, becoming an effective movement organizer. Tema and I actually have two introductions for Mark, and I'll start with a formal introduction. Mark is a political organizer and anti-war activist. He first burst onto the political landscape in the United States as a member of and ultimately the leader of the Columbia University Chapter of Students for a Democratic Society, known as SDS. SDS was the leading student anti-war social movement in the United States in the 1960s.
2: The year was 1968. The Vietnam War raged on. Liberal uprisings took hold in Czechoslovakia. The civil rights movement intensified. Across the globe, people cried out for radical change. In the U.S., these cries rang out across many college campuses as students pushed for civil rights and demanded an end to the Vietnam War and the draft. These sentiments translated into activism and demonstrations, many of which ended in violence. Such was the case at Columbia University in April 1968.
0: For the Full History Channel video about the 68 Columbia protests, find a link in the show notes. And during the 1968 Columbia
1: University protests, he served as a spokesperson for dissident students, protesting a variety of issues, most notably the Vietnam War. And he helped such iconic actions as the move to occupy the office of Columbia University President Grayson L. Kirk, a major touchstone for the growing youth anti-war movement. As the war escalated, Mark Rudd worked with other youth movement leaders to take SDS in a more militant direction. Rudd, together with some other prominent SDS members, formed a paramilitary organization inspired by the Red Guard, referring to themselves collectively as weathermen, after the lyrics from a famous Bob Dylan song. Mark went underground in 1970, hiding from law enforcement following the Greenwich Village townhouse explosion that killed three of his weather underground peers. He surrendered to authorities in 1977, serving a short jail sentence. And after serving as a mathematics instructor at Central New Mexico Community College, he retired in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Mark is the author of an essential book about the social movements of the 1960s, titled Underground, My Life with the SDS and the Weathermen, published by William Morrow in 2009. He maintains a spectacular blog and web presence, thinking about contemporary issues, anti-war movements, and activism. And he is an active public scholar and social critic whose work focuses on issues of nonviolence and electoral change. Now, a lot of what I've mentioned could be ripped off from Wikipedia, but what Wikipedia doesn't do is give you the real picture of what an amazing force for justice, social organization, and connection Mark has always been. I've had the privilege of being invited to parties at Mark's home a number of times, and you really have to bring your A-game if you come to one of Mark's parties.
0: There's now a slight change in John's audio quality as we move to a recording from UNSW's e-learning platform, where this panel took place.
1: I've had the privilege of being to a number of parties at Mark's house, and your first impression walking into a party at Mark's house is that it is the best party you've ever been to. It is only on closer reflection that you realize it is the best party you've ever been to and it is filled chalk to the brim with political thinkers and leaders and scholars and people working to do incredible things. You really need to bring your A games because you never know who you're gonna be sitting next to. He's really truly become an essential node in an international network of people doing good work. But the main reason him is that he's also an incredibly deep thinker, particularly about change and social organization, which is one of the things I really want to have some time to talk to him about. Tama has a wonderful story about how she first met Mark.
3: I feel like, I don't know, I'm about to roast you or something. Mark and I met actually when I was the same age as most of you all. I was about 20, I think, when we met, and you were younger than I am now. I think you're in your mid forties. And we met at an organizing meeting to organize the Green Party, what's called the, here it's called the Greens, and in the United States is called the Green Party in the state of New Mexico. And it was actually a successful effort, not because not I was there, but because people like Mark and others were organizing and getting it done. And I didn't know who Mark was yet. I knew he had a little bit of an iconic aura around him. But we got into conversation, and I, what I was struck by with Mark is that he really was curious about what I had to say. He really was listening. And that inclusivity really struck me, and it was only after we stopped our conversation that someone leaned over and told me who Mark was. And then, before we left on that day, Mark said, hey, let's start uh, writing letters to each other, talking about what's going on in the world right now. I want to hear your opinion. To me, as a 20-year-old university student, this was a very striking experience. And then we've been friends ever since. I reminded him of this because I was thinking I, I had the opportunity to meet Gloria Steinem. And some of you may know she's an iconic feminist leader and changemaker in the United States and had the exact same peer, uh, experience with her. And in both cases, what I learned from that is that real changemakers listen. Real changemakers are curious about especially what, what younger people have to say. And in that, that, that inclusiveness. So I'm ex- super excited that, that Mark's with us today. Thank you for staying up mark and i'm also excited that there's another community college teacher now in a leadership position in the white house coming on in so that's super anyway i'm gonna i'm gonna give the floor to you and are you ready
4: to go
0: i am i have the voice memo on excellent mark recorded his end of this conversation into voice memos on his phone from his home in albuquerque new mexico going to show there is no excuse for bad audio in 2020.
4: That was a little bit too flattering. John, I thought you were going to talk about the food.
1: The food is spectacular. I will tell you that I did not want to distract uh, or create a greater sense of envy for those who have not yet had the opportunity to be in your home.
4: Tama, thank you for equating me with the skills of Gloria Steinem. There's a, a wonderful new movie called The Glorias, which is an adaptation of a book of hers a memoir called My Life on the Road. It really is about listening. The book is about listening. And so is the movie. And, and I really do recommend it. It's called The Glorious.
1: Well, and let's, perhaps that's a good transition to talk a little about some of the questions our students had about the Weather Underground documentary. The students have prepared a number of questions in advance. I'm just going to start with one that I think is particularly useful to start with. Yona Obaid asked, amongst other things, while some of the shortcomings of the, the Weathermen movement were documented, how might the Weathermen have influenced modern movements that embody anti-war, anti-capitalist, and anti-racist values? What do you think the, some of the, the legacies are, both SDS and the Weathermen?
4: Oh, legacy as well. Let I me, mean, let's take them separately. Uh, SDS was the largest uh, student radical, radical student organization during the Vietnam War. It really only existed from 1962 to 1969, but it, it, it kind of birthed a whole generation of organizers, uh, many of whom are, 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 are still at it. In a way, most, most of whom are still at it. But the biggest legacy of all, I think, is the fact that we were part of a successful social movement. We helped end the war in Vietnam. And I know that's that's a big claim, but I can tell you that the Vietnamese have always thanked the international solidarity movement, and including the American movement, for our contribution in helping to end the war. And I can tell you at a personal level, having once been involved in a mass social movement of that sort, which one, I've spent the rest of my life wanting to reproduce that. It's a great feeling. Fabulous. So I think the biggest legacy of SDS is that we were part of this this enormous global social movement. Which which won we we helped end the war in vietnam we we withdrew the United States, attacked Vietnam with main force troops in nineteen sixty five and by nineteen seventy five left and Vietnam won its freedom now, of course, what became of it that's another issue and uh, which we could talk about at that time, we thought we were part of uh, a global movement which we called national liberation, or rather we were acting in solidarity with national liberation movements around the the world. That didn't work out quite as well as we we had hoped, and I I could comment on that. As far as weatherman is concerned, my view of weatherman is I am an extreme outlier among the, the weather participants. I am extremely negative about the legacy of or rather about the impact of the weather underground weatherman in SDS uh, and then the uh, weather underground and i consider the legacy of weather to be don't do this because it screws everything up so we can go deeper into that
1: well you know a number of the students really were curious about that for example Rebecca Waterfield mentioned that sort of given the, some of the misgivings that you've had looking back, she asked, what barriers can we as activists employ to sort of stop organizations from shifting in a more violent way, right? And she also adds in, how do we make sure that our nonviolent resistance and activism is able to maintain credibility in the face of often hostile government and media? So I guess there are two parts to that, right? But I do think that the worst mistakes are ones we don't learn from. And so maybe that's something you can speak to, because I think our students are very much engaged with and concerned about how to be effective change makers. What lessons are there for contemporary changemakers and activists about how to sort of maintain a nonviolent focus in terms of tactics?
4: I've tried to understand the nature of the error, why, why we, we chose what was essentially a counterproductive strategy. So I think I'll start there. Most of us were white kids, middle class. I I was solidly middle class, so to speak. Many of us were were intellectuals from somewhat elite schools, at least at the beginning of SDS. And there was a realization that hit us really hard, that our country was committing military aggression and also deeply racist, structurally racist country. I remember at that time, segregation was legal 50 years ago. And I I think that those realizations shocked us so much that we wanted to express that shock. So to understand my motives was to differentiate between responses to this realization that are primarily in the realm of self-expression. I want to show the world, I want to show other Americans uh, that I understand the nature of this country and I want to respond violently. That, that will somehow express myself. And I I think you see that now reflected in the uh, the same motives reflected in the anti-fascist movement, the support for for Black Lives Matter. However, what we we didn't understand, which I think was implied in the question, was that that self-expression is not necessarily productive at building a political movement. It can be counterproductive, and specifically in, in in our case, we made the issue of violence, our right to, to to violence, a divisive issue within the anti-war movement. We actually, at the height of the war, which was essentially sixty-nine seventy we attacked the rest of the anti-war movement as not being radical enough. That's crazy. You know, we we had a fantasy that if we went further, that the country would become revolutionary. I mean, we even had a theory, a strategic theory that that we adopted. We actually appropriated it from Cuba. It was the Foucault theory. So, John and Tama, I could talk at, at length about the Foucault theory as a, a justification or rationalization for our need to express how radical we were, but the Foucault theory didn't work. Should I explain that? Okay, the Cuban revolution, or rather the overthrow of Batista, uh, the, the uh, US-backed dictator, happened January 1st, 1959. Starting from 56, Fidel Castro, Che Guevara at his side, had led a small group of armed guerrillas in invading the island, and they eventually became what, what might be called the vanguard of the revolution, in that, that they, they fought Batista's army and eventually defeated that army militarily. However, the the revolution itself was much more complicated and involved a lot going on in the cities, as well as in the countryside where the guerrillas were. After the revolution, Fidel's faction of the revolution, you might say, seized power. When they did that, they developed a myth. The myth was that the only important thing that happened in the revolution was the guerrillas and they wiped out the memory of the 20,000 students and workers, for example, who were murdered by Batista forces in the cities. And in in doing so, they they justified the one-party state that was created. Now, I only achieved an understanding of this phenomenon many years later. As a 20-year-old, actually, come to think of it, yeah. In uh, uh, January and February of 1968, I visited Cuba uh, on the first student trip organized by SDS to Cuba. And I, I, I essentially fell in love with the, the idea of socialism and fell in love with Che Guevara as the heroic guerrilla. And the theory had been promulgated by Che, and Fidel, via conversations with a young French intellectual by the name of Brigitte Debray, we all read a book, which came out in 1967, "Revolution in the Revolution," and it's, it's got a question mark at the end. In, in this in, in this book that we all read, the the the, the notion is is put forward that. The only thing that really counts is armed struggle. And that it, it is critical not to talk about revolution, but to actually begin doing it. And it, it's kind of like almost a cult of the gun. It's been called that, a, a cult of the gun. And the theory is that when you begin armed struggle, the masses, in this case of peasants, will join and that becomes the mass revolution but that armed struggle is at the center of it FOCO it's called the FOCO theory and FOCO in in Spanish means roughly nucleus so you start guerrilla warfare and you win through successful battles it's kind of a um, a reduction of what is essentially a political phenomenon into a, a purely military one Well, my friends and I fell for this theory. However, we neglected to see that it had already failed. Che Guevara, for example, was murdered by uh, Bolivian forces backed by the CIA in October of 1967. And this was already 1969. We were advocating the same strategy.
1: Never worked anywhere. Uh, Essentially, politics has to be in command. So that's actually a great transition, because I think one of the things that came up in a lot of student questions was, how do we apply this lesson to contemporary issues? On environmental activism, certainly like Earth Liberation Front, even Sea Shepherd have at least, if not full commitment, sometimes have have sort of brushed up against violent direct action. And while Extinction Rebellion, School Strike for Climate are clearly nonviolent movements, it's easy to imagine how people could start getting frustrated and desperate, and that there could be factions in the future that sort of look to more violent models. What lessons would you offer in terms of people doing environmental activism? regarding how to manage the, the or or deal with or or work with internal cultures.
4: You know, social movements and political movements are essentially mass phenomena. They involve hopefully involve millions of people. That is our goal. It, it's the power of the millions that make the change. It's not the few. Now you could you could talk about, for example, you mentioned Sea Shepherd. You could talk about propaganda of the deed. That can be useful. In a mass movement, the goal is always building the movement. Millions of people. That's how the war in Vietnam, or rather one of the factors in ending the war in Vietnam, was the, the global solidarity movement, including especially in the United States. That involved many millions of people. It will not be done by a few. So it's a simple test. If an action leads to building the movement, that's good. If it doesn't, forget it. It's just simple. Now, just to add one more thing, social movements, for example, do not necessarily involve changing power relationships. For example, we helped end the war in Vietnam, but the United States was just as militaristic after the war in Vietnam as before. In fact, they, they learned how to run an empire better after Vietnam because they didn't use uh, as many American soldiers and agitate the American people. And now they're up to the point where they can murder people around the world with only a few American soldiers. And so the American people don't even notice. In other words, both, uh, they revolutionized imperialism. But, and we may have ended that war 50 years ago, but we certainly did not and the system. So there was not a power transfer. To do that, it takes a structured movement for power. And my my example, the best example that I know of, is the far right in the United States. Over 50, 60 years, people who believed in the power of, of unfettered markets, they built a movement for power. And they took power, and they had a strategy to do that, which was to take over the Republican Party. And they gained power. At the moment, they're still in power, even with the last presidential election. They control the courts in the United States, and they control the Senate. So what they considered to be a social movement had an important political element to it, which was the transfer of power. That's something that uh, uh, those of us who want to save the planet from global warming uh, will have to work on the power issue uh, in order to, for example, stop the mining of carbon-based fuel. That's going to be the parallel or second area of struggle, the political movements. There's the social movement and the political movement.
1: I want to talk a little bit more about that. I also want to open it up for our students and those of our guests, if you have questions or comments. For example, Den mentions that Australian voters were 78% in favor of the Vietnam War involvement they had from 1961 onward, and then with regular troops from 1965, but by 69, their own anti-war efforts had become strong, and Prime Minister Gough Whitland got us out in 1972 when he was elected. Prime Minister, same year time Nixon was President. That said, I mean, let's talk a little bit about this approach towards political power because I think that's really interesting, right, about how you build a movement for power. And you mentioned that it, those of us who are deadly concerned about climate crisis are going to need to involve themselves in that. So I guess there are two questions. One of which is, you know, what are your thoughts about translating a movement around environmental protection into political power. And secondly, sort of talking about some of the things that you've mentioned already, Benita Hammond-Brown, one of our students, mentioned, you know, why is it so essential to engage middle and upper middle class white people in mass movements? Why do we need to aim for the middle when we're looking at creating mass movements?
4: Well, for one thing, uh, middle class and upper middle class people have more leisure time. You know, that, that was just a fact back uh, Fifty years ago, we as uh, students did not have the um, economic pressures that students now have. Oftentimes, social movements begin there. But I'm learning now about the movements in the United States to control the police and against mass incarceration. And those movements are, are not necessarily at all led by uh, white middle class people. So I think that what we're going towards eventually is a transfer of power, and an increase in democratization. There's a, a very interesting interview that just appeared this morning in a online a, a magazine called Jacobin. It's an interview with Angela Davis about feminism and the prison abolition movement. Well, it's, it's actually got more than that. It's an interview by a, a young writer named Esther Taylor, in which they, they talk about the relationship of feminism to prison abolition. And, and essentially the view is that there's an increase in democratization, that our goal is a, 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 a society or a world in which people do have power. Thinking about global warming, the, the transformations that have already begun on the planet involve many hundreds of millions of people and those people have have rights they have a right to live those rights have to be made manifest in relation to the rights of capital you know deep down I'm still a Marxist I may not be a very good communist anymore but I I do believe that it is a struggle of capital versus everybody else you might call it capital versus labor, and so now we have a planet whose very existence is threatened by too much power in the hands of of those who want to continue the system of of fossil fuel energy. So, I consider the movement for global survival, the Extinction Rebellion, for example, the Sunrise Movement, as being fully democratic in the in the broadest and best
1: sense of the word. Thank you. Den had a question. He's been waiting patiently. Den.
5: Yeah, no, that's fine. Going back to what you were saying about whether the bourgeois become involved or whether the middle class become involved, a key element of the Vietnam protesting by, by the late sixties was that we had the housewives of St. Ives. And now in, in Sydney terms, St. Ives is a rather upper class rich area even back then and so when you had all of these prim and proper conservative right-wing well-to-do housewives standing in the streets of Sydney with placards saying bring our troops home yes that really did resonate a very strong message on the six o'clock news and when bringing it back to our class here of environmentalism that's a lot of the activists that we initially had were quite violent and, and quite extreme, and it was all very, very illegal. We had people being dragged off the national broadcaster live on TV, being arrested because people had tipped off the police inside the building and things like this, right? So, we actually had a lot of that crazy stuff going on here quite full on. And, and out of a lot of that activism was where we got the Greens Party in Australia and the actual movement, which started up into its proper sense. And a lot of them came out of that anti Vietnam War activism which, you know, was, was quite full-on for, for Australia at the time, being a very conservative nation still overall, very white, still quite a low level of uh, multiculturalism, except for the Greeks and the Italians after World War II. So it was, you know, there was a lot of change that came out of that, in, including our own activist movements.
4: You raised a number of issues. It's just one, the idea of civil disobedience. You talk about housewives being arrested. That is propaganda of the deed, no doubt about it it's, it's, it 's I would call it direct action in fact, but it 's nonviolent it doesn 't give ammunition to the government and the repressive forces to be able to claim that the, the social movement is violent one of one of the problems with the demonstrations in in the u s and in in, in two thousand and twenty Around the murder of George Floyd, and and the murder of other black victims, is that there's all this confusion about who's responsible for violence. You know, we can eliminate that confusion by just being nonviolent. You know, in other words, it's it's better it's better tactics. It's just better tactics. But the argument for nonviolence goes deeper. We could go into that. I wanted to ask you a question, though. What became of the anti-war movement in Australia? I, I think it, it, that it's a, it's a wonderful history that Australia did pull out before the United States did.
5: But well, it, it, it had a lot to do with uh, Gough Whitlam being elected prime minister in 1972. was a Labor government at the time anyway, because the anti-war movement, the vast majority of Australians supported it right throughout the 60s and right up until the end of the 60s and then it changed to be very against it because we brought in conscription and we brought up call up and all this sort of stuff and that was all extremely controversial so it took a while for people to check it out but there's a famous skyhook song called horror movie and it's it's about watching the vietnam war on the tv as you're eating your dinner at six o'clock right live in front of you as villages are burning and all the rest of it the anti-war movement had a lot of old-school communism in it, and some pretty radical socialism in it, a lot of them did turn into what we now call the Greens, as Tama was saying to to begin with, the political movement. A lot of that did turn into that because Greenpeace had a lot to do. The the, the mix of Greenpeace and the anti-war movement are very linked, right? And, And also, I mean, that evolved eventually into things like Sea Shepherd as well and even though I know it was one of the American founders of Greenpeace who then started Sea Shepherd, a lot of Australians have been involved in that since since the beginning but, you know, and New Zealanders for that matter as well but the anti-war movement then sort of moved on to against uh, French nuclear weapons testing in, in the South Pacific and, th- and elements along that line because Australia um, once we pulled out in 72 we really didn't have another war until, uh, what, Bush Senior went into Iraq in, in what, 91, so. I have a quick
1: question that was posed by Patrick Dunstan. Patrick, do you want to ask your question uh, of Mark? It's great to talk to you, Mark Rudd. I, I enjoyed
6: your film, even though it wasn't really an ideal situation. It was very informative as a political organizer myself as to what not to do, obviously. But, yeah, so I'm, I'm sure you might be aware that the most left-wing of the two major parties in Australia, the Labour Party, tends to get a bit of the raw end of the deal, sometimes squeezed between the more conservative and the vastly more left-wing Green Party in Australia. I'm actually involved in helping rebrand student group in a similar kind of situation, squeezed between the more conservative groups and the more radical left groups. And while the policies which and the positions we support are very similar to that of Bernie Sanders. The hard left, hard right tend to have more populist appeal. And I've got a hand in trying to help rebrand this so we actually communicate these ideas to the public. Do you have any suggestions as to kind of avoid going in either direction?
4: We've got the same problem. One of the founders of SDS, Tom Hayden, who's now deceased, wrote a book in 2009 in which he uh, talks about the rise and fall of mass movements. And he, he, he says that every single mass movement has within a, a, a struggle between the what he calls the fundamentalists and the pragmatists. <laughs> the, the, the fundamentalists being, for example, the, those of us who were in the anti-war movement completely anti-imperialist and, and anti-capitalist. And, and wanted no part in the American governmental charade of elections, for example. So the, the movement against the war held both the, the fundamentalists and, and the, the pragmatists in it. We were the fundamentalists. And, and usually at the end of a mass movement, they, the movement ends in a struggle between the, 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 the fundamentalists and the pragmatists. I would imagine that, that the, maybe Tam and John could talk about this, how that uh, plays out now within the movement to end fossil fuels, the fundamentalists and, and the pragmatists. But it's, it's inevitable. It, 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 it'll always be. In the election that just happened here in the United States, The Democratic Party is completely riven by this this struggle, and it has many ramifications. I don't know if any of you saw an interview with uh, Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez that she did. It it actually began as an article, a statement that she wrote saying that the right wing of the the Democratic Party had sabotaged itself by not mobilizing the radical non-white people by not getting them out to vote. And so there's there's a, an enormous struggle. This is inevitable. At the moment, I'm a social democrat. I'm not a fundamentalist anymore. I mean, I understand capitalism is at fault, but I can't possibly postulate a socialism that will be anything other than utopian. So I tend towards, at the moment, having having made the... The purest mistake, i I'd probably uh, go uh, the other direction now into pragmatism. And I say, well, we're going to have to live with capitalism probably for a few more generations at least. And social democracy is about the best compromise we can possibly have. There's also another kind of a realism, too, that I'd like to offer, which is that if you go to war with people, especially if they're, they're your neighbors, the results are not going to be, there will never be peace. This is not going to happen. I learned that in two ways. One, I'm Jewish, and my whole life I've been subject to pro-Israel or Zionist propaganda about the need for a Jewish homeland, and yet I've never at least for the last fifty years or so, I've ne- I've never succumbed to to that form of nationalism. But that having been said, the Palestinians—they're not doing that well. And and if they had had the discipline, I'm saying, in the face of of Israeli violence, if they had had the discipline to impose a completely nonviolent movement, they would have at least been able to split. The Jewish population, rather than united in fear. So I think that there's a lot to be said for nonviolence as as a strategy. But the other way I've been thinking about nonviolence over the years is back in 1989, I heard the Dalai Lama speak at the University of New Mexico. And people, somebody asked him a very hostile question, why don't you want to go to war with the Chinese? and why don't you hate the chinese and he, his reply was well they are our neighbors and when this is all over we'll have to live with them. that that you know i think about that a lot in terms of my own personal struggle with my neighbors here who are trumpists you know i mean if we go to war it 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 it'll, it'll never stop so i'm i don't, I don't know how I, how how I, I just evolved this from your question, but I, <laughs> do you have a response?
6: Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty solid point. Like actually declaring war against your neighbors is not a very productive way to move forward. Like, we see this same thing happening within the left and right of the Labour Party, which is like pretty bad. I guess the problem that I tend to have and many of my friends tend to have is that there isn't enough awareness of there being a middle ground between economically conservative and radical left. And both left and right tend to pose as democratic socialist while adopting either direction, just caught in the middle. Is it more important, the ability to communicate these ideas to the public? Or would you say it's more important to um, form alliances or I guess play cards in both directions? That makes sense is the question.
4: Yes, it does. I mean, essentially, uh, uh, you and I are, are, are suffering from the fact that we're intellectuals, and we, we we try to think about this stuff, and think about strategy, and think about outcomes, whereas most people don't. So, the, your question, what's most important? Myself, I'm I'm not advocating selling social democracy. As social democracy or democratic socialism, whatever you want to call it, but i 'm for concrete proposals that will make people 's lives better, for example, in the United states there 's a hell of a lot of people who have no health insurance, and somehow or other they 're going to be they 've got to be convinced that universal health care, which you have you have universal health care. But in in the United States, the the concept universal health care is is tarred with the the label socialism, and you know some people uh, have forgotten the negative con- connotations. But but to a lot of people in the United States, socialism is against Jesus Christ, because cause everybody knows that Jesus Christ was a capitalist. So you know it, it, this is it's a hard sell, but. No, I think it's got to be on the, on, on the basis of simple outcomes. You know, one thing I don't understand about Australia is you really do have a number of crises that are directly attributable to global warming. And yet, somehow or other, the government will not at all acknowledge this fact. But that's true in a lot of places. I was in Japan a, a year ago, and they're extremely susceptible vulnerable to global warming, and yet they won't even discuss it. It's not on the agenda in, in Japan. So the, it, it's kind of like a, a, a sort of a universal denial. I suspect that our job is going to made, be made more complicated, and, but also easier in a sense, by the various crises that are coming. I mean, the the, the global pandemic now is related to global warming. And globalization
1: anybody have a question they want to pose to mark directly
4: let's stay with australia and global warming would you say that 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 there's a that the dominant feeling is denial people don't want to deal with global warming in australia that's the topic of your class
2: like a lot of the general population there's not a lot of people denying it but I think with the government, like, there's a lot of interfunding between the government and our fossil fuels and, like, agriculture. They just kind of deny it in the way that they don't want to acknowledge it's a problem because then it's something that they actually have to deal with. I don't know. Maybe that's just me, but that's kind of what I feel like is occurring. Thanks, Rebecca.
3: Can we hear from some more women in voice? I think that also
2: amongst the general public, like, I think people are just scared to accept it as a crisis and it's not that they don't believe it or they're even in denial. They just, like, block it out of their what they consume, the media they consume, they fill their life with other things so that they don't have to face up to the reality because it is so scary. So it's not necessarily like that the content isn't there. It's just that people are actively kind of trying to work to block it out of their reality.
1: And Rebecca wanted to follow up as well.
2: This is kind of coming from a conversation I had with my friend's mom the other day. She's like, oh, but everything's changing all the time anyway. Like, how do you know it's not a natural thing that's just like occurring? Like change happens. I kind of like told her a bit about it and like explain like we can see in the statistics that it is because of certain things that we do. It's worsened, it's magnified. And she was like, yeah, but everything's too expensive for us to make a difference. I think maybe people realise it's an issue but feel like it costs too much money to for them to make an individual impact. Like, she was like, I can't afford a Tesla, I can't afford solar panels, so, like, I can't really do anything anyway, you know? I was just thinking about how Australian policy has a history of, like, I take it fully responsibility for the government to make change and how government could have change to a much cheaper form of power but they're getting so much money from like in their pocket from the fossil fuel people that they're refusing to adapt to much cheaper and available green energy as a country so really I feel Australia the one reason we haven't adapted so far is because government officials are so addicted to the coal companies and the major organisations are here, and yes, Murdoch does actually fuel that addiction, which is bias.
1: Thank you, Georgia.
3: I think that just 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 to clarify, then Jackson, we want to hear from you, but just to clarify that, Mark, is that I mean, one thing I learned from you, and that I hope we'll talk about after break, is there's a difference between strategy and tactics, for instance, and when you know when when. After I helped organize a women's march in Albuquerque, and then you and I were working with the Sierra Club to, to organize a day of action, one of the things I really learned from you is, is, is that as a fundamental concept, as a foundation for what is organizing and what, it, what isn't. So, I mean, that, that could be a starting point maybe for the conversation, but I know you have a lot more to say. Jackson, take it away.
0: Oh, it's nothing important. I just wanted to add on that I feel like a major reason why Australia is so reluctant to act on climate change, both the government and especially people in rural areas, is that they always argue that Australia relies on coal. It's like the majority of our exports and everything. It's like a major industry. So people are going to lose their jobs. That's an argument that's heavily used. They don't talk about it in the sense that we can transition those jobs into more green, renewable energies. So I feel like that's just like a major argument that's used over here is jobs.
1: Well, let's, yeah, and Rebecca points out they say that about farms too. Let's sort of think about then how we might begin to organize as we take a 10-minute break. And when we come back, I'm going to invite Mark to kind of lay out some of his approaches to the difference between strategy and tactics, about some of the deep thinking about how you go about creating a mass movement, and of course, throughout, participate with your comments and
0: questions. Sounds pretty good, right? As we're close to 50 minutes for this episode, we're going to call it and make this part one of this podcast adaptation, but right next to this, wherever you're listening, is part two. We hope you've enjoyed hearing from Mark Rudd as much as I have in bringing it to you, and a massive thanks to John and Tema for allowing us to share this with you. Check the show notes for links to learn more about Mark, the SDS, the weathermen, and the tumultuous 70s and their cautionary tales. I hope you hear us again shortly in part two. The Climactic Collective